Uh, and then, now I'll pray. So the band's already gone, but that's okay. Let's go ahead and just uh, open in prayer. Father, uh, it just, uh, it, it's a tough thing to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We can't really well up enough desire in our own hearts. We can't see you clearly enough, I think, in our own strength. Um, life is too messy. Sometimes it clouds it. Uh, we, we can't do this thing on our own, and, and so we're completely dependent on you. And we just would ask not only for our lives in general, but for this community and, and even just this Sunday morning that you would draw us to yourself. We want to know you. We want to know you more. We want to find rest in you. And we would just ask that you would come. You would just move. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. So it's Art Sunday. And what I finally decided to do was, was answer a question that I get asked a lot. Uh, more than most questions, what usually will get asked of me is this. Why all the focus at art or on artists at Antioch? You know, I come around and it seems like there's a lot of art things going on or artists are mentioned a lot. Uh, what's, what's the deal with that? Why such a focus on art? And so this morning I thought we would just talk about God and art. God and art. And hopefully answer that question so that we all understand why, as a body, we would value art and artists. And I have a, an insert in the bulletin. If you want to follow along, I don't always do kind of follow along things, but this week uh, I thought we would. So if you look in the bulletin, there's kind of a, a sheet where you can follow along with notes, and, and we've got a PowerPoint behind that you can look at as well. And the first thing I want to do is just work at a definition. We're not going to labor on this, but work at a definition of art. And art is uh, several things, if you look on your your notes. Let me just pick up on a few words, and it's beauty, and skill, and aesthetics. Those are parts of art, and I think sometimes we get a little bit confused, and so we'll define fine art too. And fine art is art produced or intended primarily for beauty rather than utility. If I were to say carpenters, or cabinet makers, or other types of things which are trades that, that have an art, artistic kind of quality to them, I think everyone would say, yeah, there's a need for that skill. I think the thing that, that we, we harp on or that where the discussion really comes is fine art. Is there value in fine art, art that is produced or intended primarily for beauty rather than utility? And that brings up this question, so why talk about art and aesthetics? And it's... The first reason is this, beauty, what fine art is about, beauty is tied to worship and emotions. Beauty is tied to worship and emotions. It's amazing when God wants to stir in us kind of the heart of worship in Scripture, he points us to the stars or he points us to the, the beauty of creation so that we would be filled with awe and that awe is something that's a part of worship. Let me also turn it around another way. Um, beauty and art it has to do with creation. It has to do with creating wonderful things. And God created the world. He created all of it. He created the sunsets. He created beauty. God is an artist. God is a creator. 
And if we remove that category called art from the table, how in the world are we going to give God all the worth or the glory that he deserves? Let me, let me give you an, an illustration. When, I, when we moved here, I went to a house of someone that had bought by the canal because it was like having a river in their backyard and they loved it. It was, you know, walk right up to this kind of flowing river. And then not too long ago, a couple of years ago, I talked to the same people and they were all up in arms because they were going to pipe the canal, put it in a pipe so you don't lose water through um, seepage into the soil and things like that and so that it wouldn't be dangerous and, and other factors. And their value, the value of their home was going to plummet because this river in their backyard was no longer a category. It was no longer on the table. It was no longer um, something that could, could be factored into the value of that home. Does that make sense? If we take art and remove it, it devalues life. Let me put it another way. If you took golf off the table, how much value would Tiger Woods have? It's something he's good at. It's something he's great at. And because he's great at it, we praise him. God is an artist. God is a creator. God does beautiful things. And if we remove a care and concern for art and beauty, how are we going to praise God the way we praise Tiger Woods for golf? And so if God is going to get all the worth and all the glory and all the praise that he, he has a rightful claim to, all the categories have to be at play. All the things have to be valued. So art is important. Beauty is important. It's tied to worship and the emotions. If you took poetry away from Shakespeare, what would happen? I love what Francis Schaeffer says. He says this, an artwork can be a doxology in itself. An artwork can be a doxology in itself. A doxology is a song or, or kind of a passage at the end of something, a tag at the end that takes whatever's being talked about or sung and turns it back to praise to glorify God. And, and artwork, says Schaeffer, can be a doxology, something giving praise to God all in itself. Artwork is tied to worship and the emotions. The second reason we need to talk about art and aesthetics, and this is more specific, is this, that art and culture has been devalued in many ways in the 20th century, and that should have kind of on the end by the Christian community. Okay? Why talk about art and aesthetics? Because art and culture has been devalued in many ways in the 20th century, especially by Christians and fundamentalism. Now, there's two reasons this is. The first one is what happened with art in the 20th century. It's interesting, around the time of the Civil War is when cameras first started coming out, and it took a whole, a whole skill away from artists. Artists used to make a living doing portraits of people and landscapes and, and creating images, and now all of a sudden the camera could do realistic work that, that artists were no longer needed to do. And so in some sense, it freed art up to go and pursue different directions or it just sent them in different directions because it was no longer needed to kind of create these exact Xerox copy representations. So that coupled with a lot of worldview shifts coming into the 20th century, largely as a result of, of evolution and evolutionary theory, art went in a whole lot of different ways. And it scared a lot of people. Early in the 20th century, Picasso and Salvador Dali and Cubism uh, Marcel Duchamp, and uh, I think, oh, I don't have a picture. I had a picture. I deleted it. Um, 
in uh, 1917, Marcel Duchamp, he takes, as a part of a series he called The Ready-Mades, and he takes a, a urinal, turns it 90 degrees, and takes a photograph of it. Okay, and in 2004, it was voted the most influential artwork of the 20th century. Okay? That threw Christians off. It, it, it was changing culture. It was changing the way art was being done and the reasons for which it was being done. And, and they, the Christian fundamentalists saw this as a greater attack on truth and worldview. Duchamp says this, Back in the early 20th century, he says, art has absolutely no existence as veracity, as truth. And so art's an expression of a worldview, and the worldviews are different, and, and they're, instead of being theistic or religious or spiritual, it's refle- reflecting humanism and secular humanism, and the Christians didn't know how to deal with this. Contrast Duchamp's quote with this from Wordsworth. Wordsworth said, a great poet ought to to a certain degree to rectify men's feelings, to render their feelings more sane, pure, and permanent, in short, more consonant to nature. And this had always been the view ever since Plato. Plato said the, the, the goal of education is to take a person or a young person and to help shape their sentiments so that it, it accords with what one ought to feel. So when you see something horrible, you ought to feel horror. When you see something beautiful, you ought to feel awe and wonder. And, and so there's this whole idea of, of trying to grow people up so they have the right sentiments in the right situations and occasions. And so the Christians, that's the worldview that they had, that art was a part of moving people towards truth, moving people towards the glory of God, that it had a functional purpose towards something true beyond this world. And when, when humanism came along and said there is nothing true, and there is nothing beyond humans in this world, then art really has no grounding or any kind of objective purpose. And the Christians reacted to that. And instead of engaging it and interacting with it, they ran from it. And I think there's something we can learn from fundamentalism, and it's this, that nothing good is ever accomplished, or nothing changes, rather, through retreat. It's a good way to get away from something, but you don't change anything by retreating. Does that make sense? I mean, the funny thing is, I like a lot of the art in the 20th century, and we can interact with it, and we can engage with it, and we can talk about it. But what happened was it was devalued in many ways. And so we need to talk about it. The second reason it was devalued was because of our own internal theology in the Christian circles. Millennialism became a huge thing in the 20th century. And millennialism is really like the left behind series kind of idea. That like any day, probably tomorrow... Um, you're going to get yanked out of an airplane and your clothes are going to be left behind on the airplane, you know, and you're lucky, you know, well, it wouldn't matter to you, but other people would be lucky if the pilot stayed and didn't get pulled out and all this. But it's, it's such a focus on um, what's happening is the world is going to hell. Everything is getting worse. And any day now, Christ is going to return and he's going to yank us out. So why would we bother why, why make a sand castle when the tide's coming in? The way it was said by a famous theologian in the 20th century was this, why polish the handrails, the brass handrails on the Titanic? If you know that it's going down, 
Why value art and culture? The only thing that you should focus on is saving lost souls. And so we moved in in the 20th century to a, what was called 20th century revivalism with a hyper-focus simply on evangelism and souls. And art and culture was seen as not a Christian endeavor that was worth spending time on. If you raised your hand and said, when I grow up, I'm going to be a missionary, your whole church would come around you, they'd pray for you, they'd clap their hands, they would give money to you, they would help you, they would affirm you. If you had raised your hand in the 20th century and said, I'm going to grow up and glorify God with my art, it wouldn't have had any value in the Christian community. It was kind of written off the table. Does that make sense? Now, I'm going to just talk to that briefly because I think there's a problem with that. Jesus said, I'm going to come like a thief in the night. He said it. We need to be ready. But he didn't say, go sit on a hilltop, sell all your possessions and sit on a hilltop and wait for that. He said, put your head down and work hard. And when you don't know what's going to happen, I'm going to just yank you right out of you working hard with your head down. I'm going to have to tap you on the shoulder because you might miss it otherwise because you're so focused on, on, on working using your life for good, like doing something with your life. I, I am overwhelmed by a passage of Scripture that says this, that if, if someone honors God, I mean really loves God and obeys God, it says that God will honor that person by blessing a thousand generations to a thousand generations. He's going to show favor to a thousand generations the person that really just has a heart after God. So there's this weird tension. The Christian should be living his life or her life as if, as if like, how you live it will leave a legacy that could go a thousand generations, like a domino chain or a ripple effect that could go a thousand generations. If the, if the world's here 2,000 years from now, 3,000 years from now, 5,000 years from now, what would you be doing today if you knew the world was going to last that long? How could you live by faith knowing that God would bless you for that amount of time? So you, you have that kind of promise and that kind of reality going, saying, i got to live like that. There's this weight of responsibility. My life counts. There's, there's a heritage coming after. And then there's also this weight of um, it could come like a thief in the night. And those two things have to be there in balance. If we don't think Christ is ever coming, we, we think we build monuments. I went to the Vatican one time, and I was just overwhelmed by the opulence. And it seemed like it was man-centered to me. I was just like, they don't realize the significance of the human soul and of, of, the, of how quick life is and all that. On this side, though, it's, it's such a focus on the quickness of life and that everything's going to hell in a handbasket, Christ come back any minute, that we're not going to polish any rails on the, the Titanic. We're not going to build into anything. We're not going to labor on trying to develop anything because there's really no value. The tide's coming in and we're not going to build sandcastles. And so our own theology in the 20th century, fundamentalism, brought with it kind of this devaluing of anything that had to do with art and culture. And I think it was to an extreme, and anything to an extreme is out of balance. It says in the book of Ecclesiastes, the man who fears God will avoid all extremes. It's good to hold on to the one without letting go of the other. And so why talk about art and aesthetics? Because it's tied to worship, and that's a value. And because we've over 
emphasized one view of theology that has taken art and culture off the table. So let's try and go back and just look at it and say, what should, our, what should our, our view of art be? What can the Bible teach us about art? And the first thing is just this. It's okay for art to be symbolic. I mean, I think if I talk to Christians and I'm like, art's important, they're going to say, oh yeah, um, I love Thomas Kincaid. You know? Painter of light, you know, I, I love them. And, and that's because I can connect with it. It's got trees and it's got landscape and it's got a little cottage. And it's, it's, it's not like that other abstract stuff. It's not highly symbolic, so I can, I can resonate with it. And I think that it's okay for art to be symbolic. It's interesting, in Exodus 28, you see God commanding how the, the dress of the priest is supposed to be. And he goes on and he talks about it and he gets to the hem of the garment and he says, I want you to put pomegranates on there. And pomegranates come from a, a bright red flower and they're, they were used in ancient cultures as a red dye. Uh, the, the, from the rind, they would use it as a red dye. And what God says is, I want you to use purple, blue, and scarlet yarn to make these pomegranates. Why not just red? Just make a red yarn. Because it's okay to be symbolic and create things that represent and tie back to and point back to and give you the sense of something real or invoke in you something. And so God says use purple yarn and use blue yarn in this. He didn't want the priest's garments to look like um, a second grader did the pomegranates. Red circle, blob. He wanted it to look like someone of skill did it. And, and so he actually says that at the end. He says... Use the skilled craftsmen for this. Don't use the engineers. Use the artists. I want it to look good. And, and the other thing is, is it's funny because he wanted blue and purple yarn used in, in the rest of this thing. And so God also had fashion sense. I don't want what's on the, the hem of the garment to clash with the rest of the garment. It's just, I mean, think about it. If God went into your closet and got dressed, the clothes would match. It's, it, just, it just would. There's, I, I, read a, I read a philosopher one time, a Christian philosopher, that was talking about God as an artist, and he brought up a really fascinating point. And, and I still marvel at it. I'll be driving down the road sometimes, and I'll be thinking about it. But here's the deal. Have you ever gone into nature and looked at everything and thought, that just doesn't go? That clashes with that? Um, the clouds just don't fit the sky today, you know? I mean, think about how many different colors or hues of colors or shades or whatever are in nature. The green grass, the brown hills, the, the brown and green trees, the blue sky, the white clouds, the, the, the gray sky, um, flowers of all different colors. You go see, look at wildflowers. It's like you'd be telling somebody if they were doing art, don't use that many colors. It's, it's just too much, right? It's too busy. Yet you go and look at wildflowers, and it's all over the map, and, and you look at it, and never once are you going to say, wow, that doesn't go. That's, Im that's impossible. It's unduplicatable to create that many things with that many different colors, and it never clashes. It always goes together. Anyways, it's a side note. Um, it's okay for art to be symbolic. When the poet says your love is like a red, red rose, he's not saying to his, his woman, 
you are really skinny and you blossom at the top um, with a red face, it's, it's symbolic. It's delicate. It's, it's a rose. It's poetry. It's not being realistic there. It's symbolic language. And Psalm 89 is a great example, but you see it all throughout Scripture. God who says, don't make an idol of me. Don't make me in human fashion. I'm, sp- I'm a spiritual being. Don't create a, a physical thing to kind of give shape to me. Don't create idols. Yet when God talks about himself, he'll talk about his hands and his eyes or his wings. You know, and I'm, I mean, God doesn't have wings, Okay, that's not the idea. The idea is a wing is like a, a shelter or, or a protection or a covering. And God uses symbolic language of himself. It's okay for symbolism. Baptism is actually symbolism. The Lord's Supper is symbolism. One artist said, if all the world were clear, art would not exist. If all the world were clear, art would not exist. It's okay for art to be symbolic. You can still keep your Thomas Kincaid, um, but you can mix it up a little bit. It's okay. Uh, Second thing is this. Our problem with art forms is often cultural rather than biblical. Our problems with art forms is often cultural rather than biblical. Turn to Psalm 149 real quick with me. It's like the second to the last psalm. Psalms is in the middle of the Bible, but Psalm 149, and we could have taken a bunch of them, but this one works. Psalm 149 says this, praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the saints. Let Israel rejoice in their maker, let the people of Zion be glad in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing. There's a pause for effect. That's like as artistic as I get. Okay. <laughs> Let them praise his name with what? Everybody now. Wow. What translation are you using? It can't be right. Anyway, I'm joking. Uh, Let them praise his name with dancing and make music to him with their tambourine and harp. For the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with salvation. Let the saints rejoice in this honor and sing for joy on their beds. You know, Justin's story this morning about hearing his daughter in the closet. You know, wake up praising God. Go to bed praising God and praise him so much that it has to come out in how you move your body. Dancing's okay. It's amazing. I was watching a documentary of when the United Nations voted to allow Israel to become a nation, like in the, I think it was, it was either late 40s, early 50s, but allowed for them to reconstitute themselves as a nation. And it showed this archival footage from all over the world of Jewish people going into the streets and dancing. And I, I wanted to be Jewish. I was like, man. You know, and you watch those uh, weddings or like Fiddler on the Roof or something, and they, they dance all night, and Jesus shows up and brings wine, and they put their arms around each other, and it looks so fun. And then you go to like a fundamentalist wedding and you sign the registry and you bring your gift and when do I get to blow bubbles? Um, it's, 
It's a cultural thing. Now, is there good dancing and bad dancing? Sure. Is there good art and bad art? Sure. Is there, there always is going to be those two sides. But is dancing out and out wrong? No. That's a cultural thing. I think we, we rule out anything that feels sensual and say that's why art is evil and it's bad and it leads people astray. Well, I could read from the Bible right now out of the book of Song of Solomon and half of you would blush and at least 10 of you would walk out the back of the room. From the Bible. I'm not saying I should, but let's bring it back to a point of, of balance. That we can't just rule out things out and out that aren't biblical, but cultural. If things are biblical, that should become our culture. Our culture should follow Scripture rather than Scripture being twisted to fit our culture. Does that make sense? I refuse I think our staff refuse, our elders refuse to give our lives to a Christian cultural ideal or set of ideals. We serve, we give our time, we give our energy, and the only thing that would, would be worth us devoting that to is trying to give correct interpretation as best as we can to Scripture and follow that. We submit to it. We don't control Scripture and make it say what we want it to. We submit. We're underneath Scripture seeking to understand it. We're not above it trying to manipulate it. Third thing. So it was uh, our problem with art forms is often cultural rather than biblical. The third thing here is God's message is often best conveyed through art. God's message is often best conveyed through art. In Ezekiel 4, I picked Ezekiel just because I think this is just really funny. I mean, it really is not a passage you'd normally pick, but I think it's funny. Um, Ezekiel 4, listen to what God says to Ezekiel. So this guy's going to be a prophet. God's enlisted him. He's pulled him in like he's training him up, and he's given him his, his marching orders. And listen to what God says. Ezekiel chapter 4, right at the beginning. Now, son of man, take a clay tablet. Get your art set out. Take a clay tablet and put it in front of you and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. Then lay siege to it. Not the actual city of Jerusalem, but lay siege to your clay model of Jerusalem. Okay? Um, which is a funny picture for a grown man, right? Erect siege works against it. Build a ram. I mean, play Braveheart with your clay model of Jerusalem. Erect siege works against it. Build a ramp up to it. Set up camps against it and put a battering ram around it. I mean, God's going over the top here. Don't just like pretend. I mean, you, I want you to full on play siege against your model of Israel. Get after it. Then take an iron pan, okay, iron pan, and place it as an iron wall between you and your clay model of the city and turn your face towards it. It will be under siege and you shall besiege it and this will be a sign to the house of Israel. Then lie on your left side and put the sin of the house of Israel upon yourself. And he goes on and says, symbolically, this is what I'm doing with Israel. I'm going to attack it. I'm going to put a barrier between me and Israel. And then until the sin is paid for, okay, I'm not going to turn my face towards it again. The biggest problem that, that some of you have with prayer 
is because you haven't gone back and dealt with that sin in your life. God is faithful and he's just and he's merciful. And if you would confess your sins, God will say, it's okay. I care about you. I forgive you. I love you. I want to know you. But we, we, we like have sin and it's there and it becomes like a barrier between us and God. And so here he is talking about, is to, talking to Ezekiel and he's giving him this living demonstration. It's like, like a dramatization. It's art. And he wanted Ezekiel to role play. Why? Because he really wanted Ezekiel to get his message and his message is sometimes best conveyed through art. We see this with the poetry in the Psalms. Smack in the middle of your Bible, it's this huge book. And most people that have been Christians for any amount of time, their favorite passages in Scripture will be one of the Psalms or a portion of the Psalms. And it's Hebrew poetry. It's Hebrew song. And if you go back to the Hebrew, it looks like poetry even more than in the English. And there's couplets and restatements and and all of the literary devices that you would expect in poetry. Metaphor. And it speaks to us. And God's message is often, oftentimes best communicated through art. Jesus did not talk like an engineer. I mean, I was an engineering major at Clemson. I had engineering professors. I hung out with engineering students. Um, and Jesus doesn't talk like them. doesn't write like them. He's much more interesting. <laughs> um, I'm an engineer, so. He talked sometimes so flowery and metaphorically that even his own disciples were like grabbing him afterwards and saying, man, you're, you're really making us look bad. Like even we don't know what the heck you're saying. Like what are we supposed to tell people? Explain that to us. I mean, he used so much art form in his language, so symbolic and everything else, that half the time people didn't know what he was talking about. Jesus talked in parables and riddles and sayings and stories. There's a, a letter that a woman wrote to C.S. Lewis one time. It's, if you buy the book, um, Letters to Children, there's a whole book of Lewis's letters that he wrote back and forth with kids. And this, this parent's letter is in that book. And this mom writes to Lewis and she says, I've got a real problem here. I've got a big problem on my hands. My eight-year-old son loves Aslan, but he doesn't really like Jesus. What do I do? And Lewis broke back and he, and he says, don't do anything. What he loves about Aslan are the character traits or the essence of Jesus. And as he grows, that will only deepen and that will be what remains in the form, the whole idea of a lion that kind of Lewis used as the Christ figure. That will kind of disappear and fade away. What he really connects with, what he really loves is the, the essence of Aslan and that's Jesus. Don't worry about it. It's a story. Your son's using imagination, but he's, what, he's, what he's connecting with is, is the real content of the story. So he writes this lady back and just says, it's okay, that's a good thing. I, I was at a church one time where the children's director, like I was appalled by this, right? Um, you can read Tolkien's got this great essay on stories uh, and the use of the imagination um, and how we have to, with young people, like, kindle the fire of imagination in them. And I was at this church where the children's director 
the, the like selling point of the whole children's ministry is we never do or say anything that's not real. We don't use any imaginary figures, no imaginary anything. We don't, imagination is completely taken out, out of it. We teach kids reality. And I, I just, I remember thinking, that's dehumanizing. Like there's going to be a, you know, a whole, like 100% of those kids are going to grow up to be engineers and no artists. And you did that to them. That's one too many. I know that's one too many, but I'm an, I'm an engineer. I can do that. Um, I love when our children's ministries kindles the imagination of these kids. One of the things, you've got to go get this art book. I mean, it blows me away. I've never seen anything like it in my life, seriously. Um, out of control. Um, coolest thing ever. And one of the things we're thinking about is, wouldn't it be neat to do a children's art book? Where like each family can take a kid between this age and this age, and they work out a plan for the art piece they're going to do. And it's not just like the drawing, you know, when you tell your kids someone's coming in one minute, and they go and like draw a stick figure and write their name, and the person shows up at the door, and they're all excited. I mean, kids, you know, if it's art, they think they're going to get a pat on the head. Like they don't understand like really working on it. That's a side note. But but I mean, this art book would be like kids actually taking and carrying through a plan and, and working on it and putting, putting forth their best effort and then taking all these things and putting it in a, a kid's art book. Wouldn't that be amazing? Like kids are going and running to grandma and grandpa and look at I'm like a published author or artist or whatever. I mean, that'd be so cool. We should let kids use their imagination. God's message is often best conveyed through art. Madeline Langle is a Christian artist, and she's got a little book that I read a long time ago, and, and um, she says this, and it's kind of an autobiography of her, her faith and art, and she says this, closing out a, a, a chapter. She says, it's not easy for me to be a Christian. Does anyone resonate with that? It's not easy for me to be a Christian, to believe 24 hours a day all that I want to believe. I stray and then my stories pull me back if I listen to them carefully. I've often been asked if my Christianity affects my stories, and surely it's the other way around. My stories affect my Christianity. Restore me, shake me by the scruff of the neck, and pull this straying sinner into an odd faith. Our imagination, God can use that and he speaks to it and Jesus spoke to it and the Bible speaks to it and there's a whole side of us that needs art forms and literary forms to, to really capture what's going on in our heart. We're subjective beings. Lastly, cost is sometimes less important than symbolic forms of worship. Cost is sometimes less important than symbolic forms of worship. In Exodus 25, there's uh, this, the commands on how to build the ark. I mean, I'll just read just like one sentence here. But make an atonement cover for the ark of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide, and make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. And it goes on and on, and it's all about pure gold. And, and sure, that's pure, sure, that's valuable, but... Geez, God, only one high priest a year is going to be able to go in and see that. That's sure an awful lot of waste of gold, right? Couldn't that gold have been used better? Jesus, right before he died, had a woman come in, and this is in the New Testament, and she comes in. 
And she takes perfume that's like a year's worth of salary. And she doesn't like do the, you know, like put a dot here and there in key places and anoint Jesus that way. She takes the whole thing and just dumps it over his head. I mean, if he was like allergic to chemicals or something, he would have just been going crazy. Um, she pours the whole thing over his head and it's so extravagant that his disciples go, what a waste, that money could have been given to the poor. And Judas is thinking, yeah, what a waste, I could have gotten a cut of that money, you know, and, and that's probably why he went and betrayed Jesus that night, you know, and, and, and I mean, the disciples don't even get it and they're talking about it and Jesus puts them in their place so strongly, he says, every time you tell the story of me, every time the story of me is told, you know, what, what should follow next? Tell them I was the sacrificial lamb. Tell them how I raised people from the dead. Tell them how I fed the thousands. Tell them how I um, really worked the Pharisees over in that great debate, you know. He says, every time you tell the story, you talk about this woman who got it. That nothing was too great to express worship for me because I'm worthy of it. The gold back in the tabernacle um, God's worthy of that. I can't stand going into churches where absolutely no attention is given to anything. It's like a poster on a wall about something coming up that's really important, baptism or something. And it's like it's gone through the washing machine. And somebody's like just kind of stretched it out and pins it to the wall. Like isn't that baptism worth more than that? Does nobody really care to give it its best, you know, and and sometimes cost is less important than symbolic forms of us attributing worth to God. Does that make sense? So how do we conclude with this? First conclusion would be this. We should enjoy and value art and aesthetics. We should enjoy it. It should be something we care about. One of the things the reformers did was they, they confronted this whole dichotomy that had happened and and what was, what was deemed to be sacred by the Catholic Church was only what happened in the church, the things that were a means of grace. A means of grace. There are seven different things where grace would come into a person, and that was spiritual. And the people that, that did that and handled that, offered mass or whatever, those people were sacred and doing sacred things. The guy that was uh, a cobbler or the guy that was um, whatever, the construction worker guy, the midwife gal, the, the doctor, the, the teacher, the, the weird, just different things that people do for a living was secular, had no sacred value, had no religious value, had no spiritual value. And what happened was the reformers came along and they said, no, the priesthood of all believers, we're all holy in God's sight and everything we do, okay, can be done to the glory of God. It says whether you eat or whether you drink, you do all to the glory of God. If, if you're shoeing a horse, do it in such a way that it reflects on the value that God has. If you're writing a term paper, you give it your best so that God is glorified in that. If you put up a, a baptism poster, do it in such a way that someone looks at that and says, these people care. It's a big deal. God gets glory in that. And they removed the secular sacred distinction and all of life was a way in which you could glorify God. And so when a kid raises his hand and says, I'm going to be a missionary someday, clap and applaud. And tell him you're going to be the first one to sign up to, to support that kid. And when someone raises their hand and says, 
I'm going to be an artist or a philosopher or a poet or a medical doctor or a cabinet maker, whatever it is, you applaud and you say, go and do it well. Bring glory to God. Take the gifts he's given you, the passion he's given you, the skill he's allowed you to accumulate, and you go work hard to build up the the body of Christ, to further the kingdom of God, to bring glory to God, make him proud. And we applaud for all those little children. There's no sacred, secular distinction. We need more Christian artists, philosophers, poets, Hollywood movie makers and the like. C.S. Lewis said this, Good philosophy must exist if for no other reason than bad philosophy exists and needs to be answered. We run from whole categories of things and we've got to start asking ourselves, why are we retreating? Why don't we engage and interact and use things that God has created to, to, to work for good and to build up the body? Second thing, if we enjoy and value art, then we should create a culture where artists and their contributions are valued. The greatest message, the gospel message, right? The greatest message in the world deserves the best marketing in the world. Do you believe that to be true? Schaefer said, an artwork is a doxology in itself. If we're about worshiping as a community, what better way to do that than to just turn artists loose to create things that are gonna, that are gonna glorify and bring praise to God? And worship him. I dream of a, a community where it's like everyone that, that has artistic ability comes in and feels like I get to express what God has put into me here. I find full expression here, whether it's through uh, making jewelry or singing or playing with kids in an artistic way and painting their faces. I don't have to check my talent at the door and be like, you know what, I can come in and watch and observe and be a spectator at this church, but my artistic talent and my passions, they have no place here. I can't utilize those. I I just dream of a place where even the cabinet makers come in and they say, man, I'm somebody. Different kinds of carpentry are like, man, we don't want anyone to do that. We want you to do this carpentry because we know it's going to get done well. And it's going to bring glory to God, and it's, people are going to see that, and they're just going to rejoice. We have to create a culture, an art-rich culture. If we really value it, and we realize it's a category that, that reflects on God. That art book, if you pick that up and look through that, it is amazing to me, the artists that came out of the woodwork. Like, you know, don't tell anyone, but the person sitting next to you could be an artist. I'm I'm serious. When you look in this art book, you're going to realize, man, I never knew that churches had so many artistic people. They, they hide it because during the day they work at jobs that pay money or something. And people don't know they really have this artistic ability, but they're out there in this church. And I think God, said, God sheds tears over the whole idea of the starving artist syndrome. God sheds tears that we've relegated art to that thing where you can't make any money and if you're really smart, you won't go down that road. So we steer people away from it in career counseling. Instead of embracing it and saying, if God gave you artistic ability, then he probably wants to do something with that. He's got a plan for that. It probably has a part of, of your calling wrapped up in it. So let me just close by sharing a little of my heart. So 
Um, if someone's sleeping next to you, just shoot them an elbow because this is one thing I care about that you need to hear. Um, seriously now. I, I run into people everywhere that are struggling with a passion for Christianity, for church, and for their God. It's epidemic. It is so hard to be on fire for the things of God, the spiritual things. It is so hard, and we walk around, and we shudder, and we're so cold so often, and we don't want to be that way, but we're that way, and it hurts, and we feel it in our gut and in our stomach. And then you look around, and it's crazy because people have passions, and they're red hot about the craziest things. The person that's crazy into, like, diets and eating healthy will preach at you all day long about that. And, and people actually are, are crazy passionate about quilt making. If you go to Sisters, there's like a, a quilt show every year. And if you cut some of those people, they will bleed quilt making. And they are so passionate about quilts. And that's cool. Nothing against quilt. It's like an art form, okay? But we're passionate about so many things. Like Batman, who went and saw it. I would have been passionate, but the guy's... T- Behind me, we're like talking the whole movie. This is bitter. Um, <laughs> but you talk to the guy that's like, every midnight show, I'm there. I'm passionate about it. I'm a movie guy. I'm there. I wouldn't miss it for the world. And we're passionate about so many things. So many things. And yet when it comes to God and faith and church and Christianity, it is so hard to get, to get it revved up. It is hard. Life is messy, God is mysterious, and it isn't easy to walk by faith. And we're all struggling and saying, man, if, if I could go buy at the store 100 bucks or even 1,000 bucks, but I could get a portion of spiritual passion, I'd run up my credit card. I would. I want joy so bad that I would spend money. I'd go into debt for it. I'd buy it if I could. And there's, we're struggling We're like those charcoal briquettes, the old school ones that you hold a match next to it and you can hold that match there for 100 years and that thing is never going to catch on fire at all. We are like charcoal briquettes. We've been lumped together, grouped together to be on fire for a purpose and we can't catch fire. No matter how many matches we light, no matter how many studies we do, no matter how many books we read, no matter how many whatever, it, it just seems like that. I think art and artists are the lighter fluid. I believe this for a long time. I think it's the lighter fluid. And I think we absolutely need to value art and artists if the rest of us are going to be able to catch fire. We all need what they bring to help make us feel, to stir our passions Listen to what Matthew Arnold said when the poet Wordsworth died. He said this. He says, but who, ah, who will make us feel? So for a whole generation, Wordsworth had fired people up and made them feel, and now he's dead. And Matthew Arnold laments and says, but who now will make us feel? If you're an artist and you're here, if you do not engage 
we will not feel as a church, as a body. There will be no passion and no fire. And we need you to take the gift that God gave you and to use it the same way that all the other gifts, teaching and helps and administration, are supposed to be used to encourage and build up the body of Christ. You have to bring the fire or we won't feel. We are desperate for you to fix the problem of passionless Christianity. Why do I value art? I value art for the same reason that God created it, because the world would be incomplete without it. I value art for the same reason that God created it, because the world would be incomplete without it. I'd be incomplete without it. Father, uh, we would just ask and pray, um, commit, that your plan is better than, than the plans we come up with. Your story is better than the stories we would create and write. And art is a part of your story, and artists are a part of your creation, and beauty is something we need in our lives to be whole. And if you do but one thing, just fire up the artists that they might fire up the rest of us in this church that we would all somehow one day be a huge, passionate, joy-filled community. That those people that are in the gray and that are struggling and that are hurting and that just don't have life beating in their veins would look over and see it. Light is attractive, light draws. Joy is attractive, joy draws. And that we might be able to reach people by just doing art well and feeling deeply. We commit this church to you. We commit our endeavors to you. We commit this day to you. We pray that in Christ's name.